You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Daily Social Distancing Show. I'm Trevor Noah, and on tonight's episode, LL Cool J is gonna join us on the show. I chat to Kimberly Jones about Black Lives Matter, and John Bolton has a brand new book out exposing President Trump. But the joke's on you, Bolton, because Trump can't read. So let's catch up on today's headlines. Welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is The Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition. Let's kick it off with the Supreme Court, the second highest court in the land after Judge Judy. President Trump has been counting on the court's 5-4 conservative majority to make all of his policy dreams come true. But for the second time this week, the court is saying, not so fast. We've got breaking news that comes from the Supreme Court, a decision that's going to impact so-called dreamers. These are people who were brought to this country as children by immigrant parents who were here illegally. Their status has been in limbo as the Trump administration has tried to end a program known as DACA, and the court has ruled. The Supreme Court has said that the Trump administration wrongly tried to shut DACA down. So DACA is going to survive, and no one has ever disputed that if President Trump wanted to, he could, by executive order, shut it down. But that's not what the Trump administration did. Instead, the attorney general at the time, Jeff Sessions, said in his opinion, DACA was illegally started. And so the Department of Homeland Security, based on that guidance, ordered that DACA should be shut down two years ago. And today, the Supreme Court, by a five to four decision, said that they went about it the wrong way. Wow. What a momentous week for the Supreme Court. On Monday, they ruled that the LGBTQ community are protected by the Civil Rights Act. And then today they announced that Trump can't just arbitrarily decide to end protections for dreamers. At this rate, tomorrow they're gonna announce that Trump retroactively has to serve in Vietnam. Now, what's interesting about the court's ruling is that it also said that Trump does have the power to terminate DACA, but only if he terminates it in accordance with the process laid out by the Administrative Procedures Act. And basically, to put that in terms that the president would understand, The court has said that you can color Sebastian any color you want, blue, yellow, whatever, but you have to color within the lines. And for the 650,000 DACA recipients who are currently in limbo, this is truly one of the best pieces of news that they could get. Because it means they can continue working in their jobs, paying taxes, and going to school, and not be afraid that tomorrow, randomly, they could just get kicked out of the country. Now, of course, President Trump isn't taking the news well. I mean, after the decision was announced, he tweeted that it was a, quote, shotgun blast to the face of Republicans. And then he asked, quote, do you get the impression that the Supreme Court doesn't like me? Which is crazy. The Supreme Court is not supposed to like you. They're supposed to like the Constitution. But Trump thinks everything is about him. When the sun goes down at night, he probably thinks it's because him and the sun have beef. Now... While Trump is having a temper tantrum about the Supreme Court, his real fury has been reserved for former national security advisor and full-time Got Milk ad, John Bolton. Because as you've probably heard by now, Bolton is about to release a tell-all book, spilling all the tea from his time in the White House. And even though the book hasn't come out yet, it's already a riveting read. 
Bolton confirms President Trump explicitly linked military aid to Ukraine to investigations of former Vice President Joe Biden, the central claim that led to the president being impeached. Bolton alleges President Trump expressed a willingness to halt criminal investigations, to in effect give personal favors to dictators he liked, citing cases involving China and Turkey. At one point telling the Turkish president he would replace Southern District of New York prosecutors to make an investigation into a Turkish firm go away. Foremost on Trump's mind at all times was re-election. One example, says Bolton, the president asking China's President Xi to buy soybeans and wheat to help win the support of farmers, quote, pleading with Xi to ensure he'd win. Man, that is wild. According to Bolton, Trump's shady dealings with other countries went far beyond Ukraine. He was promising to personally kill any investigations into Turkish companies, and he was begging China to help him win re-election. And you know, that's not just corrupt, it's also really embarrassing. Because Bolton's book makes Trump sound less like a president and more like a crackhead who's out of cash. Come on, G, just help me get one more term. Just give me one more term and I'll suck your, did I tell you about my electoral college victory? So strong. Now remember, John Bolton is not some lefty hero of the resistance, no. He's a Republican through and through. He worked with George W. Bush and his father and Ronald Reagan. He also ran a major GOP super PAC and he was a paid commentator on Fox News. So he's as Republican as an assault rifle giving a lecture on trickle-down economics. So Bolton revealing these things about Trump should at least spark some concern because not only does he accuse Trump of abusing the presidency to keep himself in power, but it turns out Trump might be even more ignorant than we thought. Bolton paints a picture of a highly uninformed and impulsive president. In excerpts of his book, The Room Where It Happened, Bolton says President Trump did not know Britain was a nuclear power and asked if Finland was part of Russia. Sweet Lord, how do you become the president of the United States without knowing if Finland is its own country? I mean, I, I don't expect much from Trump, but if he doesn't even know about the white countries, then what chance does Papua New Guinea have? So, it's not a surprise that there's a lot of stuff that Trump doesn't know. But don't let that fool you into thinking that he doesn't know what he's doing. Because in the book, Bolton also reveals how one shocking moment from Trump's presidency was actually a carefully thought out plan. In November of 2018, Trump came under fire for writing an unfettered defense of the Saudi crown prince, littered with exclamation points over the killing of the post-columnist Jamal Khashoggi. But according to Bolton's book, the main goal of the missive was to take away attention from a story about Ivanka Trump using her personal email for government business. And here's the quote. This will divert from Ivanka, Trump said, according to the book. If I read the statement in person, that will take over the Ivanka thing. That's right. Bolton says that Trump chose to personally defend Saudi Arabia's dictator over the murder of a journalist just to take attention away from Ivanka using a private email account for government business. And I'm sorry, but that's like lighting yourself on fire to distract from the fact that you farted. I mean, I get why Trump wanted to distract from Ivanka using a private email, AKA pulling a Hillary Clinton. But if you just want to distract the media, there are way less horrifying ways to do it. You know, like maybe 
Maybe streak across the White House lawn or eat a vegetable for the first time. Breaking news, the president has ingested a piece of broccoli. We'll bring you around the clock coverage as we wait to see how his body reacts. And I don't know about you, but I'll never be able to trust another Trump scandal again. Like, does he actually think Mexicans are rapists? Or was he just trying to distract from the mustard on his shirt? So I don't know. Selling out your credibility and abandoning America's ideals just to get your daughter out of a jam, that seems pretty awful to me. But on the other hand, I don't remember shit about Ivanka's email scandal. So, hey, I guess it worked. So, just from the excerpts that we've seen, John Bolton's book has painted Trump as corrupt, dumb, and amoral. But my favorite thing that has come out of this book so far also showed us that Trump is, like, really weird. As the Washington Post reported today, quote, in the months following the summit, Bolton described Trump's inordinate interest in Secretary of State Mike Pompeo delivering a Trump autographed copy of Elton John's Rocket Man on CD to Kim during Pompeo's follow-on visit to North Korea. Trump had used the term Little Rocket Man to criticize the North Korean leader, but subsequently tried to convince Kim that it was a term of affection. Getting this CD to Kim remained a high priority for several months. Yep, you heard that right. The president of the United States, obsessed with getting a CD to Kim Jong-un, like some teenager giving a mixtape to his crush. You gotta listen to track five. It reminds me of the time when you said you were gonna lose your nuclear weapons, but then you didn't. So tricky. You know, this might actually explain why nuclear negotiations between America and North Korea broke down. Because can you imagine being Kim Jong-un and then getting a signed CD from Elton John, but it's signed by Donald Trump? I mean, like, that's like getting an autographed Michael Jordan jersey but it's signed by Donald Trump. There's no way to make it more of a joke. This is the joke. He's rude joke. It's also weird that Trump thinks Kim Jong-un listens to CDs. Dude, he's the president of North Korea. The man listens to cassettes. So these are just some of the crazy details that have come out of this book. And it turns out there are many other things as well, like Trump encouraging China to put their Muslim population in a detainment camp, or saying that journalists deserve to be executed, or even that invading Venezuela would be, quote, cool. Yeah, it doesn't end. Now, Trump's response to all of these revelations has been pretty predictable. He claims that Bolton is lying and that he's just a disgruntled, boring fool, which is basically what he says about any former employees who criticized him. He's also suing Bolton to try and prevent the book from being released because clearly Trump is afraid that this book is going to tarnish his reputation. But Mr. President, don't worry about that at all. Because whatever is in this book, I promise you, will in no way change our opinion of you. After the break, we learn a little about Juneteenth and LL Cool J joins us on the show. So don't go away. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. You may remember, that President Trump had to move his big rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, because it was originally scheduled on the same day as Juneteenth. Now, that was particularly awkward because Tulsa is the site of an infamous 1921 massacre of black people. But in a new interview with the Wall Street Journal, Trump says that he had no idea Juneteenth was even a thing and that he polled many people around him and none of them had heard of Juneteenth either. Now, I don't know why that's surprising. Of course, nobody around Trump had heard of Juneteenth. 
Look at the people he has around him. Look at them. Mike Pence doesn't even know what a cayenne pepper is. You think he's gonna know about black history? But to be fair, Trump is hardly alone. There are many Americans who don't know what Juneteenth is. And if you're one of those people, Dulce Sloan is here to explain it in her new segment, Dulcein. Tomorrow is Juneteenth, the day we celebrate slavery officially ending in America. Or if you're gone with the wind fan, a day of mourning. Now you might be thinking the end of slavery. So this is about the Emancipation Proclamation. Nope. The Emancipation Proclamation of 1863 didn't end slavery. Slavery didn't even end when the Civil War was over in 1865. In reality, it took two months after the Civil War ended for the Union Army to get into all the slave states and free the slaves. When it came to giving out freedom, white people ran on CP time. But on June 19, 1865, a Union general named Gordon Granger occupied Texas, the last slave state, and declared all of its slaves free. He's an American hero. And he looks like the barista at my coffee shop. I'm gonna have to thank him next time I order a macchiato. And freeing the slaves in Texas was especially important because although Texas was the last state to be emancipated, it had a ton of slaves. It was blacker than a family reunion in Wakanda. That's because during the war, a lot of slave owners shipped their slaves to Texas for safekeeping, knowing the Union troops couldn't reach that far. They were basically treating Texas like the couch cushions you hide your weed in when the cops come. Officer, I didn't know. I got this couch on Craigslist. It came with the weed. Of course, even though we celebrate Juneteenth as the end of slavery, it took many more months and a military occupation to actually enforce it. Because it's one thing to tell people they can't have slaves, it's another thing to go door to door like, hey, you paying these guys? Cause if not, this better be a big ass sleepover. And all this still didn't free slaves in union territories. That didn't happen until the 13th amendment. Yeah, that's right. There were union states with slaves. Imagine living in New Jersey and being a slave. That's one human rights violation on top of another. Either way, black people in Texas recognized June 19th as the day they were liberated. They organized the first celebration of Juneteenth. Then over time, it spread as black people migrated. And today, it's celebrated by black folks around the country. Juneteenth celebrations have evolved and become a real way to pay homage to those who came before us. It is a representation of our freedom where we can all come together on one street, close down the city to represent the culture. You see, that's why Juneteenth is my favorite Independence Day. It goes Juneteenth, Independence Day with Will Smith, then the 4th of July. I'm not a fan of fireworks. Sounds like someone's doing a drive-by on the sky. So if you ask me, we should make Juneteenth a national holiday because everybody, everybody, should celebrate the end of slavery, the beginning of freedom for black people, and the long march toward America's founding ideals. Also, we get the day off. I don't wanna be stuck in an office in June. Kevin keeps heating up fish in the microwave because he's a pescatarian, and then he keeps cooking all these eggs. Thank you so much for that, Dulce. When we come back, we'll be talking to activist Kimberly Jones and of course, LL Cool J, still to come. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Earlier today, I spoke with activist and author Kimberly Jones. 
We talked about her book, I'm Not Dying With You Tonight, and about her powerful speech about the plight of black Americans that went viral. You broke the contract when for 400 years we played your game and built your wealth. You broke the contract when we built our wealth again on our own by our bootstraps in Tulsa and you dropped bombs on us. When we built it in Rosewood and you came in and you slaughtered us. You broke the contract, so fuck your target. Fuck your Hall of Fame. As far as I'm concerned, they could burn this bitch to the ground. And it still wouldn't be enough. And they are lucky that what black people are looking for is equality and not revenge. Kimberly Jones, welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here with you. Let's, let's get straight into that video that went viral in, in a way that few videos can. What was interesting about this video was that so many people have been talking about what's going on in America, but, but this connected with people who maybe didn't understand what was happening before or didn't quite grasp the subject. I had a friend personally who was like, I don't know, I don't know. And, and he sent me your video and he's like, for the first time, I truly understand. And I was like, wow, what am I, chopped liver? So, so talk, me through, talk me through the video. Like, because it seemed organic. It seemed like you were, you, were, you were in the middle of, you were in the midst of, like, it looked like there were protests or something had happened. Talk me through how that video came to be. So my, my friend David Jones was working on a documentary. He and I have both been out at the protest, um, you know, separately, and he has taken his camera out and was recording. And so he called me that Sunday morning and said, hey, you're really good at like man on the street stuff. Can you come do some man on the street for me? And I was like, sure. So we stayed all day. We ended up being at a protest later that day. But the time in which the video was recorded, people were out cleaning up um, downtown Atlanta. There was this, this large group of African-American people who were downtown cleaning up downtown. Um, and they had spent their own money purchasing cleaning items and things like that. And I kept interviewing these people and the consistent, you know, notion was that, you know, it, the focus was on the looting and they were, and they were focused on the looting and they were focused on what that was going to do to the narrative. And it just struck me in a really odd way that I felt like this is the direction that the narrative was going, that everyone was going to center the looting and lose focus on the, on the real issue at hand. And so I just started talking and David hit record on his camera and that almost seven minute video is what came out. Yeah, it, 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 it was a really wonderful analogy that it was apt in the way that it captured a story that so many people have struggled to tell about America and in many ways the world, you know, I mean, Using Monopoly was was the perfect metaphor because it was it was like that's that's what Monopoly is. It's a game where the rich get richer, and you know some people you end up in jail and you don't get your two hundred. And and I mean, most Monopoly games I know of end up with people flipping the board and hating each other. Do you think that's where America is right now? Is people are flipping the board saying I don't want to play because this game is not fair? Yeah, I think that's exactly where people are. I think people are saying that the game is fixed. And I think there are people who are finally waking up and being empathetic to that, right? And saying, hey, you know, I've been on the board and I've, I've watched what's happened to you. And, you know, now I'm recognizing too that the game is fixed and like I'm, I'm outraged on your behalf. I'm not even, you know, I'm not surprised even a little bit that this outrage has come on the back of a pandemic because uh -huh. I think it's first time that people have been still and they've actually been able, you know, they're not like taking the kid to soccer and going to work and doing all these things. And so they actually had the time to sit down and grapple with the issues because right. growth, yeah, growth only comes from discomfort. And so you can't 
avoid, you know, something that's going to make you uncomfortable if you're sitting on the couch stuck with it. One of the lines that struck me the most and has stuck with me ever since is when you said to people who are watching the video, you said these people, and I'll paraphrase you, you basically said these people should be, should be grateful that black people want justice and not revenge. And, and, and that struck me because I, you know, maybe because of South Africa's narrative as well. So many people assume that what black people want is like revenge or, 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 or an advantage as opposed to an equality. That, that struck a note with so many people. What do you think some people don't understand about the struggle? I think, you know, one of the bigger issues that people don't understand is, you know, we talk a lot about the murders and we should because they're devastating and we have to get these crimes solved and we have to have a better way of handling these situations. But the one thing that people don't talk about are the daily indignities that black people suffer in this country at the hand of the police. Officers are being sent to marginalized neighborhoods, you know, to do excessive ticketing and in areas where you know that people are economically disadvantaged and there are going to be insinuating circumstances that are going to cause them to not have certain things in place like registrations and insurances and things like that. And then you put them in a system where they have these huge like $1,500, $2,000 tickets that they can't pay and now they're on probation. And so it's like this, this ability to like feed the penal system. Um, but it, again, for me, that's why I made the monopoly analogy because it's economically based and that economic disadvantage allows people to continue to brutalize people. And so if you don't see the daily indignities, you think these occasional uh, murders that make the news, which for the record, there are tons of them, tons of murders, like the case of like Jamarian Robinson, who who don't really make national news, but there's just like a daily, it's like, it's like this bully that lives in our community and nobody else sees it. Yeah, what's, what's really powerful about just your analysis of the situation is that it, it, it very aptly captures what's happening, not just in America, but, but specifically in Atlanta right now. Atlanta has become a hotbed of these issues, you know? And the killing of Rashad Brooks has been one of the more interesting ones because I've, I've always felt like, you know, it, it, it encapsulates everything that's happening wrong in America, you know, everything wrong that's going on. It's interesting that he even had a video that, that of him a few years ago where he talked about what it's like to be somebody who served time but has no opportunity to get back into society and how that then traps you in, in a cycle of always going back, as you said, into the carceral system. You know, the, the, the news came out now of the police officer who shot him, kicking him afterwards. And, 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 you know, if anything, people, I think, were reacting to the fact that it was like a further dehumanizing of this person. You know, it, it wasn't just that you've killed the person, but now you're kicking them quite literally when they're down. What would you say is like the core essence of what people in Atlanta are saying and feeling right now? I think the main thing is that people in Atlanta are super upset because the original narrative that came out was that this doesn't happen in Atlanta, right? Like that, the, that was the that was the narrative that the people in charge put out, and people who are experiencing this on a daily ba- basis were completely insulted by that, and they didn't respond well to that because they're like, we can name situations. Have you guys just forgotten about Mr. Arbery that was just right before this um, right. with the with the vigilantes? But even in terms of the Police. Again, I bring up people like Jamarian Robinson, who four years after his murder, where he, over 90 rounds were fired at him and 76 rounds hit his body, his mother has still not received any justice for that. There have not been any arrests in that case. So this is something that is happening here too. And so people were feeling that at the time in which this happened. And now to have this happen with Rashard Brooks right on the heels of this. And, and here's the thing. 
the disconnect that you would even think to draw and use your firearm in the midst of this heightened state just goes to show you how much there is a lack of concern for the Black form in this country and how aggressive and how we have created the warrior cop instead of the guardian of the community that we actually deserve. Because at the end of the day, I don't care what the circumstances were around that, the sentence for what was going on in that video was not death. And we cannot allow officers to be judge, jury, and executioner in the street. That is not how this works. That is not the social contract that we all agree to, as I so eloquently stole from you. <laughs> oh, um, I will say I've stolen most of my things from a black woman who I call my mom. So um, I guess it's just a cycle that goes around. Um, let's talk a little bit about your work that, you know, I guess as fate would have it is tied to everything that's going on now. You co-authored a book entitled, I'm Not Dying With You Tonight. And the book is a novel that is inspired by the civil unrest in Baltimore after what happened to Freddie Gray. So tell, tell me about the book and, and why you decided to write a novel, you know, that, you know, a, a book that, that lives in a, in a fictitious world about something that's really real that's happening in America today. My co-author Geely Siegel saw this clip um, in the news that the news like brushed over really quickly um, during the Baltimore unrest about a group of kids who were caught behind a police barricade because they did some really stupid things, right? So they shut down schools, told kids to go home early and disperse, but they had all also shut down public transportation and most of the kids at the high school took public transportation home so they couldn't get home. And so there's this quick little story about them getting trapped behind a police barricade and then we couldn't find anything else about it. We, we called around, we couldn't figure out what happened to these kids. And Gili and I are both moms um, who at the time had kids who were just a little bit younger than those kids and we we're concerned. We we're like, what happened to those kids? And so we couldn't get any answers. We decided to write this book because um, we're writers and that's the way we process things. And because kids are experiencing these moments at the same time in which we are, but we're not having real conversations with them. And I think we're underestimating their ability to not only have these conversations and grapple with these moments, but actually to have some insights, really fresh ideas and new energy that can help us wrap our head around these situations. And so we wanted to write something for those kids to give them a moment. And it's interesting, we were at a teacher's conference and a teacher from Ferguson came up to us and said, some of my kids were in middle school uh, when the Ferguson unrest happened and now they're in high school and I gave them your book and we did your book as an assignment. And it's the first time that they were able to process their thoughts and they were wow. able to utilize the book as a tool to do that. And so I hope that's what it's doing is allowing kids to enter into really hard conversations. Yeah, it, it, it is, as you say, a hard conversation, but uh, with tools like your book, I hope more kids can get into it. I hope more parents, uh, you know, find your book. It's called, I'm Not Dying With You Tonight. It's a really, really beautiful examination of what's happening in America through the lens of younger people, which I think sometimes connects with everybody a little bit more. Kimberly Jones, thank you so much for being on the show. Don't be a stranger and uh, I hope to see you again. All right, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, stay safe out there. Thank you so much for that, Kimberly. Right after the break, I talk to the one and only LL Cool J. Stick around. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. My next guest is legendary rapper and actor LL Cool J. I spoke to him about the Black Lives Matter movement and how he's expanding his Rock the Bells platform to put hip hop culture and ownership in the hands of the black community. LL Cool J, welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. <laughs> Thank you, man. Yeah, we are socially distanced 
following the protocol. You know what I'm saying? That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. Thank you so much for being on the show, man, because, you know, I, I, you, you, you are a legend. You, you're a legend who's been there from the very beginning. And what I, what I loved about touching base with LL Cool J again during this time was seeing how you're one of the few people who hasn't decided to completely try and gravitate towards the young and the new. You've gone, no, I want to take what people consider the old and show them how fresh it is with Rock the Bells. Tell me a little bit about that initiative. Tell me about why you've chosen to focus on classic hip hop, keeping that culture alive and keeping the creators of that culture alive. Well, I felt like, you know, quite frankly, this is an art form. And uh, I didn't want these artists to be commoditized and treated like commodities. I felt like these are people that have made a huge contribution to the world, um, have changed culture and, inf and influenced culture globally. And um, I felt like, you know, look, if, if Bob Dylan can be upheld and lifted up as a great writer, why can't Rakim? Why can't Nas? So my thing is, I feel like um, it takes somebody that, that really cares about the culture and wants to preserve the legacy and uplift these men and women from all different elements of the culture, whether it be MC and DJ and breaking graffiti. I wanted to make sure that the, these people were represented in the proper way. And then also the flip side is, you know, it's funny, man. Generation X is like the, the, the lost middle child, man. It's like, it's either <laughs> OK Boomer or Chase Millennials. And then Gen Z is sprinkled in there kind of under Gen X's arm. But it's like Gen X is like, we're just like forgotten about. Like, you know what I mean? So it's like, I felt like, yo, there, there are still people out there who love Public Enemy, who love Run DMC, who love the Beastie Boys, LL Cool J, who love, right. you know, Eric B and Rakim, Big Daddy Kane. And it's like, why can't these artists be celebrated in a major way. So when I when I when I started the radio station, when I took over the channel on Sirius XM, I realized in taking over that channel that the fans of this culture were really underserved. Like Gen X was completely underserved. And then I also realized that every time they did get presented with some classic hip hop or some some stuff from this era, it was it was it was it was delivered dusty. It wasn't modern. It wasn't right. fresh. Right. And, and the thing about this is. I didn't, I know what year it is. It's 2020, right? I didn't forget to take my 90s or 80s high school ring off, all right? Like, I'm clear about the date, but I feel like, yo, we can look at this thing through the lens of modern culture. When you go to the Louvre Museum in Paris, or if you go to the Prado, or you know, if you're blessed to be able to do that kind of fancy stuff, or if you go to a museum, you, the Mona Lisa is sitting there and it's like, like, it's not, we don't focus on the age, it is art. And so that was the thinking behind it. What you've also done now in response to everything that's happening is you've stepped, off your, stepped up your efforts. You know, it was already about enriching the culture. It was already about getting this message out there and keeping it alive. But now what you've done is stepped up and said, hey man, you see what's happening. You wanna even, you wanna push the envelope even more. And you, so you've gone, this is about pushing black owned pieces of hip hop. You know, you, you want to get artists, you want to get those DJs, like everybody said, you want to get them into the space where they are owning the black culture that they have created for so long, but haven't owned. Why, why is that such a big deal to you? Because I feel like for so many years, it was always either the mega billionaire, trillionaire, trillion dollar corporation that was, that was actually capturing all of the value, right? Um, you know, pioneers, the world, the society is notorious for, for, for capturing value and taking it from pioneers, especially black pioneers. I want these artists that actually pioneered it to capture the value. So even in some instances where we are acting as a middleman, at least now when you buy here, you know that the value is at least some of the value is being captured by our community. You know, and I think that that is 
to me, extremely important because two, three hundred years from now, history is written by the winners. So we need to win so that we can control the narrative so that two, three hundred years from now, we leave something on this planet that that is a value that tells a true story about who we are and the contributions that we made. And when you look at the world in general, you find you realize that art Art is a huge part of what people remember in this world. And we have to get that narrative right so that it, isn't, it doesn't just become a best of. This isn't a greatest hits genre. You know what I'm saying? Right. There are people who matter who may not be the most famous or the most popular, but they had, they had an influence and an effect on our culture. In this video, I saw an LL Cool J that I hadn't seen in a long time. And it was, it was when you made a video responding to what was happening in the streets, talking about George Floyd, talking about Black Lives Matter, talking about police brutality. It was raw, it was unfiltered, and it was, it was really authentic in the way that you connected. That felt like to me, like it was a reminder of where hip hop came from. You know, like hip hop was fundamentally about speaking to this situation. Is that what you dug into? Is that, is that how and why you made that video? You know, it is the first principles of hip hop. Um, I, I, I tossed and turned all night after, you know, seeing what had happened and looking at the responses online and just seeing how people, the pain, the personal pain I was feeling. And um, I just could not, this is one of those moments where you gotta choose sides. There is no, none of that, all that being neutral and kind of, you know, you know, the Hollywood two-step trying not to offend someone. And I, <laughs> no. This, this this was clearly wrong. The way we've been treated is wrong. And I had to step up and just say, you know what? I'm a black man first. I love, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to lump all people into one barrel, like saying right. like all white people are bad. I do not feel like that because there are a lot of people that are on the right side of history. But I had to stand up as a black man and say, yo, this is what we're feeling. This is what I'm feeling. This is my personal truth. And then from that specificity, it becomes universal because so many people are feeling the exact same thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I I've been down the commercial lane. I've done the smooth thing of, you know, you know, there was a time when, you know, we couldn't get played on the radio. So we had to adjust our music to get mm -hmm. played. And, you know, that had an effect on the style of the music I created because I didn't have an Internet. Right. So, you know, well, some artists like Ice Cube and N.W.A., they just went the raw path from the beginning. I, you know, being from New York, coming from where I came from, the circumstances were different. And so I chose the more diplomatic route and it got me where it got me. But there comes a point when you have to draw a line, when you have to defend the honor of your people, um, when you have to stand up and speak truth. That's what I think matters now. I think that's where we're at in this world. We got to stick together, man. Like. And 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 it, and I've also learned just along the journey that it just can't be about LL Cool J, you know? It's not about me trying to just be the guy. It's like what are you doing for the world? What are you uh, what are, how are you utilizing your platform? Is your platform is the world benefiting from your platform or are you just purely out to, you know, get a dollar and nothing more? I had to come from a true place, man. I I I just sit around. I think about people in quarantine, they in the projects you know, people living in one room flats with five people, seven people like, yo, we got to care about our people. We got to we got to connect a little more. There's more to this thing than just this. I'm not saying I don't want to make money. Yeah, I'm America. Yo, capitalism. I'm, I'm with getting the money. I'm, I like to get to the bag. But but it's got to be about the people. I think I think it's time for us to it's got to be about something more, man. You know what I mean? That's just I the feel truth. you there.
I feel you completely. It is the truth. And I think, um, I think that's why your words connected with so many people. And I think that's why we've seen so many people, as you say, stepping off the sidelines and saying, hey man, enough is enough. LL Cool J, thank you so much for joining us on the show. I hope we see you again soon, my friend. Thanks, Trevor. I appreciate you. I salute you, man. And, and congratulations on everything you're doing, your book, your success. You know what I'm saying? I salute you. And when this is over, I'm going to come sit on the couch, man. I appreciate you, my dude. Thank you. All right. Peace. Well, that's our show for tonight. But before we go, The Daily Show and Comedy Central have been donating to three groups who are fighting against police brutality and systemic racism. The NAACP Legal Defense Fund, the Equal Justice Initiative, and the Bail Project. Now, if you would like to help out and you have the means, then please go to the following link and donate whatever you can. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast. 